Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, a political stunt or a constitutional duty. Democrats and Republicans today spar over impeaching Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas, Melina Weiskup on Capitol Hill. President Biden today claiming he's done everything he can do as president to secure the border. Arian Pastar brings us Republicans' response and more on the impacts of America's immigration crisis. President Biden says he's made up his mind how to respond to the drone attacks that killed three U.S. troops in Jordan, what he's saying about the attack, and what he plans to do for the families of the fallen soldiers. A hospital in the West Bank appeared to have doctors and patients carrying military rifles, but they weren't who they seemed to be. Find out who's behind the disguise. Jason Perry reports. And in Illinois, a complaint against former President Trump is dismissed. The state's election board said removing Trump from the ballot wasn't their decision to make. Arlene Richards tells us why and what should happen next. This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City. Here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. For the first time in 150 years, the GOP-led House is heading toward the impeachment of a cabinet official. DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas is firing back at House Republicans. NTD's Melina Weiskup joins us now from the Capitol where she's been talking to lawmakers. Melina, what are some of these members of Congress saying? Tiff, it's been a long day for members on the House uh, Homeland Security Committee. They've started this markup at 10 a.m. this morning, and still to this moment, they're still continuing to mark up these articles of impeachment against Mayorkas. Now, we've been speaking to lawmakers coming in and out of this hearing today. Democrats are trying to uh, push the message that this is an act on Republicans' behalf to try to comply with former President Trump's demands. Republicans, however, say that this is uh, their last resort for them to be able to force the federal government to enforce the current immigration laws, and they keep pointing to the sheer numbers. Remember, Tiff, last month we saw 300,000, a record high of illegal crossings. Now, there are two pieces to this articles of impeachment. The first article accuses Mayorkas of failing to comply with Congress's investigation into his actions. The second piece accuses him of failing to enforce our current immigration laws. But Democrats say that these articles of impeachment lacks evidence. Here's what I heard from some of the lawmakers coming in and out of today's hearing. They don't have any witness who said that there was uh, bribery, treason, or high crimes or misdemeanors that were committed. He's, he's breaking the laws Congress has passed. It says shall detain. He's not doing that. Um, in fact, he's turned it upside down, created policies that speed people into the country. I have a duty to do what's right, so I'll do it anyway, even if, even if we don't pass it on my side of the aisle. The DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas has responded to these impeachment efforts today, telling Congress, I assure you that your false accusations do not rattle me, saying he's provided lawmakers with thousands of hours of testimony and documents to try to demonstrate what he's done to secure the border. Tiff? And Melina, Democrats are brushing this off as a political stunt. So what do they say is the cause for the record high illegal crossings we are seeing? 
This is a very important question, Tiff, because it is at the heart of why Republicans are filing these articles of impeachment and why they've been so harsh of the Biden administration's failure to enforce the immigration laws. Now, Democrats told me their answer to this question is that they believe that there's a number of reasons. They say there's economic fallouts throughout the world. They say that our immigration laws are outdated and need to be modernized. They also say that there's issues like climate change as well as other issues at hand. Here's what one of the most vocal critics at today's hearing Congressman Dan Goldman told me. Take a look. In some numbers, that is more reflective of migration patterns, of crumbling governments, of uh, climate destruction, of corruption, of violence, uh, not only in Central and, and South America, but around the world. As for this impeachment resolution, Tiff, as I mentioned, the committee is still marking it up at this moment. Once it gets out of committee, it will then go to the full floor for a House vote where Speaker Mike Johnson says he wants a very quick vote, even though he acknowledges he's working with a razor thin majority. Tiff? Melina, thank you for that update. Amid efforts to impeach one of his cabinet members, President Biden today says he's done everything possible to tackle the immigration crisis. But House Speaker Mike Johnson doesn't buy it. NTD's Arian Pazdar has a border update. Texas still showing no signs of following requests from the Biden administration to vacate Shelby Park in Eagle Pass. This comes as 26 attorneys general sent a letter to the Biden administration on Monday. They write, what you should do is simple, enforce the law and protect the border. If you cannot bring yourselves to enforce the law, get out of the way so Texas can. On Tuesday, Fox News asked President Biden if he could do more to secure the border. All I can do is give me the power. I've asked for the very day I got in office. Give me the border patrol. Give me the people, give me the people, the judges. Give me the people who can stop this and make it work. Right. House Speaker Mike Johnson responded to Biden's comments saying he's either lying or misinformed. He says Biden could restrict entry, start expedited removals, mandatory detention and more. And as Texas continues to install fencing, illegal immigration keeps increasing in California. Fox News reports that Border Patrol's San Diego sector apprehended over 1,300 illegal immigrants on Monday alone. 160 of them are Chinese citizens. And part of a trucker convoy departed Florida on Tuesday morning. They're heading to Louisiana. Truckers from across the country are scheduled to hold rallies in cities along the border on Saturday. And the city of Denver has become the latest city struggling to support all arriving immigrants. NBC News reports that the city is now limiting the days immigrants can spend at city shelters. And a city hospital is reportedly asking for $10 million to cover unpaid medical bills for immigrants. The city's mayor says that he will need $100 million throughout the year of 2024 to support all arriving people. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. President Biden is responding to questions on the drone attack that killed three U.S. troops in Jordan. He says he has decided how to respond to the attack. Yes. I do hold them responsible in the sense that they're supplying the weapons to the people who did it. Biden added that he doesn't think the U.S. needs a wider war in the Middle East. The president today spoke with the families of the three service members killed in the attack. He also plans to attend the dignified transfer of their remains at Dover Air Force Base in Delaware on Friday. 
The White House said the president pledges full assistance to the families as they grieve. Two anonymous officials cited a preliminary report on the drone attack. It reportedly said that U.S. forces may have mistaken an enemy drone for an American one and let it pass unchallenged. That's why there was no effort to shoot down the enemy drone that hit the outpost. The Israel Defense Forces are now using new strategies to battle Hamas terrorists. This comes after Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the latest ceasefire proposal is strong. NTD's Jason Perry has the war update. Security camera footage inside this hospital shows what appears to be doctors and patients carrying military-style rifles. But they were actually Israeli troops in disguise as they raided the Bencina Hospital in the West Bank on Tuesday. The security footage didn't show any actual gun battles, but Israeli authorities say they killed three armed terrorists inside the hospital. The IDF chief of the general staff said the terrorists inside the hospital were planning to carry out a terrorist attack to kill Israeli civilians. We do not want to turn hospitals into battlefields with patients on the right and doctors and nurses on the left and terrorists in the middle. But we are even more determined not to allow hospitals to become a place that allows terrorists to stash weapons, to rest, to go out to carry an attack. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said on Monday that the latest ceasefire proposal to release hostages in the Gaza Strip is strong. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said this on Tuesday. I hear things about all kinds of hostage deals, so I want to clarify. We will not end this war short of achieving all of its objectives. We will not withdraw the IDF from the Gaza Strip, and we will not release thousands of terrorists. None of this will happen. What is going to happen? An absolute victory. The humanitarian aid situation in the Gaza Strip could soon be getting worse after an Israeli intelligence report accused the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, or UNRWA, of having 190 terrorists as employees. Now the World Health Organization is asking countries to resume funding to UNRWA after it fired nine workers accused of participating in the October 7th terrorist attacks. An Israeli government spokesperson on Tuesday said Israel is calling for the following. One, the defunding of UNRWA. Two, the resignation or dismissal of UNRWA's leadership and a thorough investigation of what they knew about its ties with Hamas. The need to ensure that Gaza's children not be educated to be terrorists, as UNRWA has consistently practiced and, has, and as has been openly documented. In another development, Israel says it has now begun flooding Hamas tunnels with water. The report released by the IDF did not say what safety measures they would take to ensure no hostages are in those tunnels. Jason Perry, NTD News. Democratic Congresswoman Cori Bush says the Justice Department is investigating her over potential misuse of campaign funds on personal security services. The lawmaker made a statement in front of the Capitol this afternoon. Since before I was sworn into office, I have endured relentless threats to my physical safety and life. 
as a rank and file member of Congress, I am not entitled to personal protection by the House and instead have used campaign funds as permissible to retain security services. I have not used any federal tax dollars for personal security services. Any reporting that I have used funds for personal, secur for personal security is simply false. Bush is a member of the group of House progressives nicknamed the Squad. She has denied any wrongdoing and said she will fully cooperate with the investigation. A day prior, the Justice Department subpoenaed the office of the House Sergeant of Arms for related documents. Bush said the allegations focused on her decision to pay her now husband with campaign funds to provide security. The Federal Elections Commission and the House Ethics Committee are also probing her campaign. In a previous probe, the Office of Congressional Ethics cleared Bush of any wrongdoing. Former President Trump can now stay on the Illinois ballot. The Illinois State Board of Elections today unanimously voted to dismiss a complaint that would have kicked him off. The board accepted a recommendation from a Republican hearing officer. The officer recommended on Friday that they dismiss the complaint because the issues involved were beyond their jurisdiction. We turn now to NTD's Arlene Richards for more information on the case. Arlene, why did the board agree with the hearing officer? Well, they agreed that an election board doesn't have the authority to decide complex constitutional issues that would normally go to a court. Now, one of the members said if they had decided this, they would have violated their own state's election code. Another member who does think that former President Trump incited an insurrection on January 6th, she said that they still didn't have the authority to decide whether or not he should be removed from the ballot. On that note, let's go over the case. Who filed this case and what are the arguments on both sides? So it was filed by legal registered voters of Illinois, and they stated that former President Trump incited an insurrection on January 6, 2021. And I want to read some of the other claims that their attorneys made on this. <clears throat> so they said the events on January 6 were an insurrection. They said Trump attempted to get government officials and other supporters to illegally overturn the 2020 election. They say Trump urged supporters to gather at the U.S. Capitol and protest and that he intended for that protest to lead to violence and forcefully prevent Congress from certifying the 2020 election results. And finally, they say all of this is a violation of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, or what's called the Insurrection Clause. And this is a clause that was created after the Civil War to keep uh, Confederates from getting into office. Now, there is a defense to this. Uh, of course, the defense is that this election board doesn't have the authority to decide this constitutional issue, and they agreed with that. Uh, they also said that the insurrection clause doesn't apply to the office of the president, and they said that besides that, Trump didn't engage in an insurrection. So several other states have dismissed similar claims like this, and they think this should be decided by the Supreme Court. On that note, there are several other states that have received similar claims to remove Trump from the ballot. What will those other states' courts likely decide to do with their cases? Well, what they should do is wait for the Supreme Court to make its final decision, because that is the highest court in the country, and whatever they decide, all the other courts should follow that. Now, the Supreme Court is set to hear oral arguments on the Colorado case on February 8th. Once they make that decision, uh, all of these cases could go away or one by one, these states will remove President Trump from the ballot. Wow, well, Arlene, thank you for that report. All right, thank you. 
And there was one other matter that the Illinois Elections Board addressed today, a petition to remove President Biden from the ballot for allegedly allowing enemies of the state to gain entry into the U.S. over the southern border. The board unanimously ruled to dismiss the complaint because it lacked sufficient legal and factual evidence. Coming up from Russia, Iran to North Korea, Beijing is cozying up ties with America's adversaries. What are the motives behind the alliance? Two former top U.S. officials were on Capitol Hill with a warning. Sam Wong in Washington, D.C. The Houthis say they are attacking container ships in the Red Sea because they want to help Gaza. But experts say they have different motives. We have highlights from a congressional hearing. Are we going to see a supply chain fallout stemming from the crisis in the Red Sea? Our guest says we're getting close if the situation continues. Hear more of his analysis when we return. Welcome back. A summit in D.C. brings together lawmakers from both sides and sheds light on the Chinese Communist Party's persecution of faith. That's as experts tell NTD that Beijing's long arm is reaching the U.S. in different ways. Entity's Iris Tao has more. And key voices in Washington speaking out on the right to believe. You fight for religious freedom. You're, you're laying a foundation for a more free and prosperous future for all mankind. In the spotlight of the 2024 International Religious Freedom Summit is the Chinese Communist Party's persecution of human rights. They've been at war with the Uyghur Muslims, with the Christians, with Falun Gong. This, this is a regime that is completely opposed to the ideas that the United States has, and we need to confront them. We They've been publishing the speeches of President Xi, not just in English and French and things, but in Swahili and other things. So they're, they're, they're spreading an ideology. In China in recent years has been ramping up its propaganda and surveillance targeting the United States and prompting Washington to take action. And a new report details how the CCP is exporting its censorship to the U.S. through suppressing an American performing arts company called Shenyun, which shows audiences around the world China before communism. Part of what Shenyun does, in addition to reviving traditional Chinese culture, is telling the story of modern-day religious persecution. And the CCP really does not want this story to be told. It feels that it's undermining its efforts, and that's really why it's gone to great lengths to cancel these performances. House Speaker Mike Johnson and a few other lawmakers from both sides of the aisle will speak at this summit on religious freedom on Wednesday. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. From Russia, Iran to North Korea. At a House hearing today, two former top U.S. officials break down the motives behind Communist China's alliance with American adversaries. NTD's Sam Wong has more. On Capitol Hill today, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, along with former CIA Director Leon Panetta, sat down with lawmakers to discuss China's alliance with U.S. adversaries. And as we watch China undertake the largest peacetime military buildup since at least World War II, and, we find, and it finds eager friends in Tehran, Moscow, and Pyongyang, we should reflect on the lessons of history. At a House CCP Select Committee hearing, Lawmakers said that China is forming new axes with other world adversaries. Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Beijing has snapped up purchases of crude oil at a discount from Moscow. And the benefits go both ways. As the West sought to isolate the Kremlin through economic sanctions, Russia has redirected its exports from Europe to China. Aside from Moscow, Beijing also sources its fuel from Iran. The Middle Eastern regime's crude oil exports just topped its five-year record, with China being its number one buyer. 
According to former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, the CCP's alliance with American adversaries isn't solely driven by economic benefits. It is Xi Jinping is driven by a Marxist-Leninist ideology. This is not an effort to improve life for the Chinese people. This is an effort for uh, aggregation of power for the Chinese Communist Party. Pompeo also reminded lawmakers about the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's hard to imagine the staggering impact that COVID had on the world, and yet no one's held Xi Jinping accountable. But for the fact that once he was aware that he had a leak from his lab of a relatively lethal, relatively contagious virus, he foisted upon the world. On the Pacific front, committee chairman Mike Gallagher told me that Washington's commitment to Taiwan is meant for deterring and preventing conflicts from escalating. That's despite Beijing seeking to take the self-governed island by force if necessary. Conventional deterrence in particular in the Indo-Pacific I think should be the top priority of uh, the entire national security and defense establishment. We have to have a global strategy because we're a global superpower. That's where we can leverage allies and partners, but that's the name of the game. I think we've got to continue to support them because they are critical to our security in the Pacific. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Sam Wong, NTD News. Beijing lodging a complaint to Washington over the treatment of Chinese students arriving to study in America. The Chinese regime alleged the students were interrogated for hours and in some cases deported. More details coming tonight at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. Join me on China in Focus. Why are the Houthis attacking container ships in the Red Sea? They say it's to help Gaza, but experts suggest there's a deeper, darker motive. NTD's Virginia Gibson has more. For months, the Houthis have been attacking container ships in the Red Sea, disrupting global trade. The terrorist group says it's helping Gaza and wants to stop cargo from getting to Israel. The Houthis have seized on a convenient narrative that played into something that they wanted. Maritime expert Ian Ralby told lawmakers Tuesday that the Palestinian cause is not the Houthis' true motivation. He also said the Houthis have a low regard for human life, including for the people in their own country. Their main objective is to advance their own movement. Uh, their movement includes goals to not only take over the remainder of Yemen, uh, but to advance on both Mecca and ultimately Jerusalem. Uh, they see this as a global movement. Ralby believes that no matter how many times the West strikes them, they will continue attacking shipping. If the West destroys all their missiles and drones, they would find other ways, such as remote-controlled bomb boats or unmanned underwater weapon systems. After starting in November, the attacks on container ships is ongoing. For them to be shot at, as they were three different times on our fleet, one of which was an hour-long firefight, hour-long firefight that they were directly in the middle of is just unacceptable. We've got to find a way to make the shooting stop. Bud Dar is an executive at MSC Shipping Company. He says this series of attacks is unprecedented. The number one thing these container ships need is better communication devices. Uh, right now, uh, we're using basically the radio. Um, or mobile phones if we're fortunate enough to have uh, the connectivity. But uh, having the communications with the combat vessels is vital. David Heindel is the president of Seafarers International Union. He says there are 75 minutes between the time a missile is launched and the time it hits a ship. He said faster communications would help the ship avoid danger. 
a danger the U.S. may have helped cause. In 2018, the U.S. Uh, was part of a, a major effort to prevent the government of Yemen from retaking the port of Hodeidah on the Red Sea coast. That is now a, a critical strate strategic failure on our part because if the government of Yemen controlled that sea access, we would perhaps not be having the same conversation we're having today. Back then, the U.S. didn't want Yemen's government to access the Hodeidah port for humanitarian reasons. Now the Houthis control the port and are using it to launch their attacks. Virginia Gibson, NTD News. Joining us now to explore the situation in the Red Sea and how it will impact the global supply chain, we have Jim Nels. He's a supply chain consultant and economic analyst. Jim Nels, thank you so much for joining us. Good to have you back on the show. Good evening. It's great to be with you. Now, the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee held a hearing today on the Red Sea crisis. They're noting the critical role that this area plays in global shipping, but also how the fallout of the pandemic had on supply chains. Now, are we gearing up for a similar fallout on our supply chains? We're getting close, and there are multiple factors that are coming into this. So, uh, as we've said before, about 12 to 15 percent of the world's global trade passes through the Suez Canal and the Red Sea, uh, either leaving the Mediterranean or going into the Mediterranean. And it's primarily a, a route that uh, connects European countries with Asia, as well as with Africa and India. Uh, so there's not a ton there that's gonna impact the United States with the exception of oil. About uh, 8 million barrels of oil per day go through the Red Sea. And if that starts to slow down, it's gonna cause a great deal of trouble. But the other part that is that is hurting is we're seeing issues as well um, with the war with Ukraine and Russia impacting the ability of Ukraine to export grain. And that goes all over the world. Uh, there is something going on on the other side of the world, too, with the Panama Canal at dangerously low levels. And that's running at about 50 percent capacity right now. That will impact what we see on our shelves. The other thing it's going to do between what's happening in the Red Sea and what's happening in the Panama Canal is we're going to start to see inflation come back in. The costs of shipping have doubled on some routes right now. That's going to be reflected in everything that you buy from your from what's on your grocery store shelf to what's going to be in your uh, favorite electronics store. Quite concerning indeed. Zooming in on the 15 percent of global shipping that goes through the Suez Canal, Shipping data is noting that the number of tankers transiting the Suez Canal fell by over 50 percent compared to the previous week. Now, if that does keep going, what is going to be the fallout that we will feel? Well, what you're going to see is you're, you're going to see a delay in the supply chain. So right now, the, the, the ships that are avoiding the Suez Canal and the Red Sea are going around the Horn of Africa. So they're, they're adding about two extra weeks to the supply chain. And it's having some very strange consequences. Primarily, there is a lack right now of shipping containers to put the goods in to then put them on the boat because they're not getting back to where they, they're supposed to be in enough time to get there. We saw this during the pandemic as well. It is going to start impacting. In fact, we already saw that Tesla has announced that they're going to shut down their factory in Berlin for two weeks because they just don't have enough parts to manufacture the cars. And now one world player that's been very quiet about all of this has been China. But now that Chinese shipping is also coming at under attack in the area, Chinese officials are now telling their Iranian counterparts to rein in the Houthis or risk business relations between the two countries. Now, how strong of a leverage does China have over Iran? China has a lot of leverage over Iran, uh, particularly with, uh, with trade. 
Uh, they are one of the few countries that continue to openly trade with Iran. But it's interesting that China, in trying to wield influence in the Mideast by being someone who's trying to get peace done, uh, that's very, very interesting to me to see China doing that, especially at a time when there's such tensions between China and Taiwan. And I tell you, if, if that becomes something and they shut down the Strait of Taiwan, the Taiwan Strait, then we are going to have a global supply chain crisis and a global recession and see inflation go back up into double digits. And given all the tensions and the crisis we are seeing in the Red Sea, what are the steps needed to reduce this Red Sea menace, as some are calling it? Well, what we need to do, and I'm, I'm very, very disappointed in the current administration. Um, in the last week and a half, we've lost five U.S. Armed Forces members. We lost two Navy SEALs in operations in the Red Sea, and we lost three people from the Army. Ironically, all of them were from Georgia, so that, that was a, a big hit to the state of Georgia. And we've done nothing other than to say that we're very, very disappointed. That's wrong. We need to hit where these people are. We need to hit the Houthis, and we need to start hitting Iranian assets. We need to demonstrate that this must stop, and we have not done that yet. Now, on that note, John Kirby has been saying the U.S. will retaliate but does not aim to escalate. How does that work so that we do hit Iran without escalating this but send that message? It doesn't. So you're going to have to... Uh, there's a phrase that we used to use in the military. It's called, you have to escalate in order to de-escalate. And that means that you need to hit them hard. Iran does not want war with the United States. Iran cannot conduct a war with the United States. That's why they're using proxies all over the place in the Mideast. If we hit them hard and show that we are not going to put up with this any longer, it will stop. Jim Nels, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Have a wonderful night. Coming up more on that developing story of efforts to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary. Our guest says impeachment is one of the few remaining avenues available for relief. Hear his take on the situation. Five arrested and six victims found in a Southern California desert. Could the homicides be linked to a marijuana dispute? And Boeing cancels a safety exemption request for one of its upcoming jets. Find out why and what it means for the plane maker when we return. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. President Biden said he's decided how to respond to the deadly attack on U.S. troops in Jordan. He spoke with the families of the three service members who were killed and plans to attend the dignified transfer of their remains. Israeli troops disguised as doctors and patients raided a West Bank hospital and killed three terrorists who were planning an attack. This after Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the latest ceasefire proposal is strong. The Justice Department is investigating Democratic Congresswoman Cori Bush over possible misuse of campaign funds for private security. The lawmaker denied any wrongdoing and said she will cooperate fully. The House Homeland Security Committee is marking up articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. GOP leaders said this is their last resort to deal with the border crisis, while well, Democrats called it a political stunt. Joining us now to discuss the House effort to impeach Mayorkas, we have Andrew Arthur. He's a fellow in law and policy at the Center for Immigration Studies and a former immigration judge. Andrew Arthur, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. 
Now, House Republicans are debating impeachment charges against DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas today. Now, the two articles of impeachment accuse Mayorkas of intentionally encouraging illegal immigration with lax policies, but also violating public trust by making false statements to Congress saying that the border is secure, both of which Mayorkas denies. Now, what do you make of these impeachment articles? Yeah, it's very interesting because uh, a number of states have attempted to sue the Biden administration to force the president to secure the border and to pick up criminal aliens who are in the United States and detain them. In uh, the latest of those decisions, Texas versus United States, the Supreme Court uh, in dissent uh, noted that uh, because of the majority's opinion, which they struck down some of these state efforts, one of the few avenues that are available for relief anymore is impeachment. Plainly, when the Supreme Court tells you that impeachment is the only thing you can really do, impeachment is the only thing that's on the table for all those members of Congress who are very concerned about what's happening at the southwest border. So, And yes, I mean, if you take a look at what uh, Secretary Mayorkas has done compared to his predecessors, He's failed to do many of the uh, key things uh, that not just uh, his predecessors and the Trump, but also the Obama administration did to bring the uh, border under secure by releasing aliens in the United States, by not apprehending criminal aliens. Things like that have created the crisis that we see today. Now, on that note, if Mike Chris does get impeached, then there is the Senate, which is a Democrat-controlled. Many are saying it's unlikely he would actually get removed from office. What do you make of what would be next? So, yeah, if uh, the articles of impeachment are uh, reported out of the House, if he is impeached, then it'll go over for this, to the Senate for a trial on whether he should be convicted. Uh, it's unlikely that uh, Chuck Schumer, the majority leader of the uh, Senate Democrat from New York, is actually going to bring that to the floor. So this will probably be an effort that will simply die in the House. Uh, but it does draw attention to all of the problems that are going on at the southwest border at this time. On the note of the problems going on on the border, the Senate proposed a deal over the weekend which would allow up to 5,000 illegal immigrants a day to cross over. Now, House Speaker Mike Johnson is already saying that this is dead on arrival. What should be in a bill to deal with immigration, illegal immigration, that would actually work? Yeah, I mean, right now, President Biden has all the tools that he really needs to secure the border. We saw under, you know, President, both Presidents Bush, President Clinton, President Obama, President Trump, that this can be done. But the one thing that this bill does need is additional money for detention. Uh, only about less than 10 percent of everybody who enters the United States illegally right now is being detained. The law requires that they all be detained. If they were detained, they wouldn't come. Uh, so the most important thing that Congress can do is actually fund that detention, uh, re those detention resources that uh, Congress has said the secretary is supposed to be using. But President Biden, in every budget he sent up to Capitol Hill, has asked Congress to cut detention funding, which, again, is another issue uh, in the House with respect to the impeachment. And given that this is an election year and immigration and the border crisis is such a big deal, what are we likely to see in terms of immigration and border policies either before and or after November? So as this crisis just gets worse and it will continue, uh, what we're probably going to see are 
other, you know, either partisan or bipartisan plans to secure the border. Uh, we might even see a government shutdown the next time that budget funding comes up because Republicans in the Congress are very serious about this. And this is one of those political issues on which the American people very strongly side, by and large, uh, with those Republicans in Congress who are calling for a border shutdown. The American people don't like the scenes that they're seeing, not just at the border, but in major cities where large numbers of migrants are milling about because they've come to those cities and are now living in public housing. Andrew Arthur, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Five arrested after six victims were found in a remote Southern California desert. Officers say the homicides are linked to a marijuana dispute in San Bernardino County. Entity's Stephanie Sakal has the story. Authorities in San Bernardino County have arrested five individuals in connection with the murder of six victims found in a remote desert area near El Mirage. I'm pleased to announce that the five suspects that you see on this chart to my right were those responsible for this homicide. The suspects, all men in their 20s and 30s, are being held without bail pending further investigation. The county coroner's office has identified four out of the six victims. The name of the fourth victim is still being withheld pending next of kin notification. Uh, victim number one is Baldemar Mondragon Albaran, a 34-year-old uh, resident of Atalanto. Victim number two, Franklin Noel Bonilla, 22-year-old Hispanic male, male adult from Hesperia. Victim number three, Kevin Darial Bonilla, 25-year-old Hispanic male adult, uh, resident of Hesperia. Victim number four was a 45-year-old Hispanic male adult. Um, victims five and six have yet to be identified. Um, investigators believe Franklin Bonilla was the subject who called 911 after being shot by the suspects. Through extensive investigation and with the assistance of the Sheriff's Narcotics and Specialized Enforcement Divisions, on January 28th, officers were able to serve multiple search warrants in the town of Apple Valley, Adelanto, and the Los Angeles County area of Pinion Hill. As far as the motives, uh, we are confident that this appears to be a dispute over marijuana, which resulted in the murders. Firearms recovered from the scene are being tested while authorities are exploring possible cartel connections. Stephanie Sikal, NTD News. Millions of people living along the West Coast are readying themselves for severe weather. Alerts have been issued for those in the storm's path. An atmospheric river brings high winds and heavy snowfall. Flood watches have been issued in northern and central California this week. As an atmospheric river continues its path from California to British Columbia, people living in its path are bracing for extreme weather, flood watches and landslides. Severe weather warning are in place for over 12 million people in Northern California, extending to Central California by Friday. In Southern California, flood watches remain till Friday morning. Wind alerts affect over 6 million in Western California and Oregon, with wind speeds potentially reaching 75 miles per hour. The Sierra Nevada mountains could see up to three feet of snow. Meanwhile, the U.S. could witness 130 daily temperature records broken this week due to these intense weather conditions. 
Turning to fallout for plane maker Boeing, the company yesterday said it was withdrawing a request for a key safety exemption for its new 737 MAX model. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on what caused the company to pull the plug on the request. The exemption could have allowed regulators to speed up certification of the 737 MAX 7. Lawmakers had been pressuring the plane maker to withdraw the petition following a harrowing mid-air cabin blowout on January 5th. The incident exposed numerous safety and quality control concerns at Boeing. The withdrawal throws the anticipated timeline for certifying Boeing's MAX 7 and the larger, better-selling MAX 10 into further doubt because it may force Boeing to make design changes more quickly than it had planned. No one died in the blowout that left passengers staring at open space 16,000 feet above the ground and forced the pilots to make an emergency landing. But the incident has turned into a full-blown safety and reputational crisis for Boeing. After its best-selling MAX family of jets resumed service following two fatal crashes, Boeing had at one point forecast it would win approval for the MAX 7 and 10 by the end of 2022. The head of the Federal Aviation Administration has repeatedly declined to put any timetable on approval. The ongoing delays have set back the fleet plans of major carriers including Southwest Airlines and United Airlines. Boeing's decision to withdraw the exemption request came ahead of its fourth quarter results on Wednesday. The exemption would have allowed the MAX 7 to be certified before making design changes to the nacelle inlet structure which holds the aircraft engine and changes to the engine anti-ice system to prevent overheating that could lead to severe damage. Boeing had planned to start delivering the new planes while it worked on a long-term fix. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up, the Super Bowl is just 12 days away, but if you haven't gotten your tickets yet, good luck finding a deal. Dave Martin joins us to discuss the sky-high prices when we come back. Welcome back, and now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, plenty of sports to discuss. Let's start with the Camila Villeva decision that apparently hasn't ended this case. Why is Team Canada now considering an appeal? Well, to be clear, they have no issue with Valieva being disqualified. Really, other than Russia, I don't think anyone does. Now, Canada had originally placed fourth in the team competition, so they figured they would be moved up to third and be awarded bronze as a result of this because Russia won gold. But the International Skating Union posted updated standings of the team competition with Valieva's results subtracted from Russia's score, and it showed the U.S. and Japan jumped ahead of them for gold and silver. But to most everyone's surprise, Canada remained in fourth, still a point behind Russia. The surprise being that Russia wasn't disqualified completely. Now, Team Canada released a statement saying they disagree with the decision that the, and that the ISU has failed to apply one of its rules that essentially states if anyone on your team is disqualified, the whole team is disqualified from that event and that they'll consider you know, any options to appeal this decision. Now, this is in addition to Russia, who's planning to appeal that Valieva's disqualification would even affect team competition results in the first place. So there's plenty more still to figure out on this. And what would happen to the medal ceremony that two years later still hasn't even taken place? 
Yeah, there were reports that the ceremony could finally happen in March. But apparently if Canada appeals, I mean, that would be treated as a new case. It would go back to the Court of Arbitration for Sports. It could delay any final ruling for another year, which would probably in turn delay a medal ceremony. Now, you would hope in that case that the IOC could just award the U.S. and Japan their gold and silver medals in March and just hold off on the bronze until this case is decided. I'm doubting that'll happen, though. Normally, they like to do gold, silver, bronze in one ceremony, but this has really gone on for long enough. Well, now turning to the NFL, Super Bowl tickets are currently at record highs on secondary markets anyway. Why would this year's game be such a hot item? Well, for one thing, it's in Las Vegas, and this is the first time Vegas has hosted this game. I mean, it's like the ultimate combination of the biggest party game hosted in the biggest party town. That's got to be number one. But it's also not too far from San Francisco. The Niners have quite a following, especially this year. They've got a stacked squad, nine Pro Bowl players. I mean, that's more than anyone else. On the other side, the Chiefs have quite a following, winning two of the last four Super Bowls. Two-time MVP Patrick Mahomes is there. Plus, they bring Taylor Swift along and her fan club as well. It's really like the perfect storm. Now, the average ticket price on Tick Pick was nearly $10,000 on Monday morning. That could change, but that number is nearly double last year's price. The, the, I'm sorry, the previous high was just over 7,000 three years ago when you had Tom Brady and leading the Bucks over these Chiefs. But it should be noted that the stadium was at like one-third capacity due to COVID restrictions. So that probably made the demand a little bit higher, I would think. Well, now shifting gears to golf, the PGA lost golfer Terrell Hatton to the Saudi-funded Live Golf Club. Now, is this the sign that the merger negotiations between these two leagues are stalled? You know, it certainly seems like it, but there's been no word on that lately. It's certainly a sign that these are probably not friendly negotiations. Now, technically, the merger was supposed to be between the PGA and the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia, which funds Live Golf. But every time they poach another player, the PGA's bargaining position is weakened because, you know, they've got a lessening product. Now, conversely, the Public Investment Fund loses millions of dollars at the same time just to pay for these players. And their revenue stream is really limited because few sponsors want anything to do with Saudi Arabia's human rights records, of course. Now, Hatton, he's ranked 16th in the world. According to the Telegraph, he got paid $60 million to join Liv. I mean, that's like three times his career PGA earnings, and he's been on tour for more than a dozen years. So there's quite a pay disparity between the two leagues. So you can see why these players would defect. Well, Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.